Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. So the Bible reading is from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through to 30, if you've got your Bible there. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Uh, Today we are back in the book of Acts. Um, This book is all about the beginnings of the early church. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, it's on the right-hand side of your Bible. Basically, Jesus has died, he's been resurrected, uh, and he's ascended to heaven, and the young church that we take for granted today here has kicked off. So this is really all of the events recorded after that big moment in history. Now, you know, every time I preach, I feel like I get up here and I say, We've come to a massive milestone, a massive milestone in in history, and just everyone hold on to your seats because it's going to be super exciting. You might think if you're a bit critical that I overstate that a bit, but I promise today we've come to a massive milestone. (laughs) Um, Because in in today's passage that Andy just read out, thanks thanks Andy, we meet these so-called Christians for the first time. Today the word Christian is used all the time, we take it for granted, but this is the very first time in history that a group of people were called Christian, and it's the first time that the word Christian is used in the Bible as well. So I think you can give me that this is a little bit of a a significant milestone. But as I studied and pondered this text, there is just so much that we could have done with this particular um, passage. And I I was looking at it thinking, how do we structure this? How do we organise it? And, And I saw all of these ideas coming together, orbiting around 
the idea of direction and movement. Um, the church is becoming great in number. Uh, and then we meet this bloke named Barnabas, and he's going to travel up north. Uh, it says down to, but that's topographically, topography, down um, in altitude we talk about up in terms of north. He actually travels north to Antioch, and apparently he sees God's grace, whatever that means. So we're going to see this kind of movement happening as he moves up north. There's a movement happening up north that he bears witness to. And so trying to organize that into an outline for you, a nice three-step cute outline that you can remember. Here's what we came up with. There's direction in the sense of forward expansion, forward expansion in the growth of the church. The second kind of movement that we see here is an inward transformation. So forward expansion in the church up to, you know, the gospel's going out and then we go to Antioch and we're going to see this inward um, transformation that's taking place by the grace of God. And then thirdly, we're going to see uh, how that is then outwardly expressed through generosity amongst God's people. Forward, inward, outward, expansion in growth, transformation by grace and expression through generosity. That's our passage for today. So if you have your Bible, um, please feel free to open that up to this passage if you haven't already. Keep it open. We're just going to walk through this text uh, verse by verse, line by line, text by text. So first then, forward expansion in the growth of the church. Let's take a look here at verse 19. We read that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And then we read that they were preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay, so in this first part of verse 19, Luke, the author of this particular book, is basically just recapping what we've been studying now in the book of Acts for a couple of weeks. Uh, he's basically taken us all the way back to Acts chapter 6. And you remember there, uh, we read about how the church was growing in size. Um, and then this man named Stephen arose and started telling people about Jesus. And as soon as he started doing that, Acts chapter 7, he preached his first and final sermon. He was killed for preaching the gospel. This was the first Christian martyr. And standing over his corpse was this guy named Saul of Tarsus, a devout Jewish man, uh, very zealous for the ways of the Old Testament and the Torah. And as we continue to read on through the story, through Acts chapter 9, we read how this man named Saul ended up himself, ironically, becoming uh, what we would now call a Christian as he was converted on that road to Damascus. And he ends up, you know, in that chapter, um, ends up receiving the same kind of treatment that he was handing out to people. And he gets persecuted in Damascus, gets lowered down the wall there in a basket to escape with uh, his life. So the church grows, there is persecution. The church grows, there is persecution. The church grows, there is persecution. This is the dynamic of this little recap that Luke has given us here in the first half of verse 19, going all the way back to Acts chapter 6. And, you know, it's really been the dynamic of the church ever since the stoning of Stephen. Hudson Taylor, he took the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the people of China. And by the year of his death in 1905, the CIM, the China Inland Mission, uh, had brought in over 800 missionaries to the people of China. And they recorded at the time of Taylor's death that there were tens of thousands of people who had come to know Jesus in the country of China. Seventy years after Taylor's death, 
the death of Mao Zedong, the communist revolutionary who founded the People's Republic of China, uh, which outlawed Christianity, brutalized and oppressed people who professed faith in Jesus. When Mao died in 1976, seven years after Taylor, the reports come in estimating the numbers of Christians in China anywhere around two to three million. Well, today, some 50 years after Mao, under the pretty firm, aggressive, oppressive arm of Xi Jinping, we have estimates at 2023 of anywhere from, it's hard to pin down, but estimates anywhere from 100 million to a quarter of a billion Christians in China. It just doesn't work to try and persecute the church. I mean, if that is, uh, you know, church history has taught us anything, it is that reality. Uh, I know everyone here loves a good Excel chart, so I plotted this. The log there isn't quite right, um, but you get the trend. It's just going up, okay? Um, And if you're excited about numbers, which I clearly am, I want you to know that this is growing still on a global scale. might not feel like it here as we live in Newcastle, New South Wales, the idea of secularism and, you know, Christianity or religion in general getting pushed out of the public square. Um, But basically, around the world, Christianity is growing at a rate of 1.17%. And that is getting closer and closer to the population rate of the world, which is at 1.2%, which is forecast to come down. So we're going to have, potentially, by 2050, the Christian rate of growth exceeding that of the human population. And comparatively with the rest of the world in terms of numbers there, it's just untouched. There are significant numbers um, in the Islamic community, that would be number two on the religious side of the house, but Christianity uh, represents one in every three people on this planet. Do you believe that? More than uh, 2.6 billion people. It's incredible. And all of this because of Acts 11.19, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen that scattered the believers into foreign lands to take the gospel beyond the borders of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, right to the end of the earth. The wisdom of God in using what was meant for evil for good. Jesus Christ will build his church and the hell, gates of hell will not prevail against it. But numerical growth is not the only thing that we have considered here over these last couple of weeks. You recall that since the stoning of Stephen, we've seen uh, this forward expansion in growth, yes, but with that has come some cultural complexities. When you get lots of different people together with lots of different views, that can bring some social friction. Um, These are the Acts chapter 6 growing pains that we talked about. And we've seen it more recently in Acts chapter 10, uh, as we were looking there at some of those strange dreams and visions that the Apostle Peter was having about animals, uh, about bacon and, and so on and so forth, being clean and unclean. The whole point of that object lesson, if you recall, um, was to help Peter, a, a Jewish man himself, to understand that the Jews, this idea that the Jews are clean and the Gentiles or the non-Jews, everyone else, are unclean, Um, That just needs to stop. That just needs to stop. Why? Because Jesus' death and resurrection has cleansed people. Social segregation, ethnic division, caste and class, the cross of Jesus Christ breaks down these dividing walls that we artificially erect. You know, like 
Lines on a map are artificial, right? We, we impose them upon something to bring order and structure. And that Jesus Christ tears down the social divisions that we put amongst ourselves. Our standing is not determined by our culture, but by Christ. And the evidence of this, you remember, was that Peter, this devout Jewish man, entered into the house of a Gentile named Cornelius, and he watched him receive the Holy Spirit. And then Peter, all excited, returns to Jerusalem, the the mothership back home, and he reports all of these exciting things that the Lord was doing. And you would have thought that you would have thought that the, uh, the church in Jerusalem would have been excited about that. But what did they say? Hmm. Wait a, hold, hold a second. Time out, Pete. You're in that dude's house? The man who was unclean? They kind of stop him in his tracks. And Peter's like, that's what you're taking away from my story? Now, before we get too hard on the Jerusalem church, let's just try and remember... What would they would have been thinking at this time? In the mind of a first century Jew, when they looked out on the world, they saw basically two kinds of people. Us and them. Jew and the non-Jew, or the Gentile, collectively everyone else in the world. Everyone else, the Gentile, were unclean. And according to rabbinic tradition that was entrenched at this point for about 400 years between the Old and the New Testaments, to even bump up against the clothes of somebody who was a Gentile when you're out and about doing your thing was to make you unclean and you had to go home and wash. That's how segregated these people were at that time. So for Peter, a Jew, to come on home and report to the mothership in Jerusalem that, hey, them are with us now, was like a massive timeout. Hold on, let's just have a little conversation here for a moment. And as Tony showed us uh, last week... Uh, Peter himself explains to the Jerusalem church, uh, defending himself by basically saying, hey, look, these Gentiles have been saved by grace, just like us, uh, by nothing they've done. So who are we, the Jews, to deny what God is doing for them freely? And how beautiful was it to read their response? It's not another argument. Acts 11:18. when they, the Jerusalem church, heard these things, Peter had said, they feel silent. Sometimes that's, that's what we should do, right? Is just be quiet for a bit. They feel silent. And then they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? They just praised God and glorified God for this work that he was doing. So that's the recap, maybe a bit long, uh, the first half of verse 19 here. Um, And I think the reason that that Luke is going all the way back to the stoning of Stephen is because he wants us to see that this, um, this is the point that he's been driving us to, the point of our text today, that he's been driving us to for weeks and weeks now. This is the big milestone. Finally, we're no longer talking about Hellenist or Hebraic Jews anymore or God-fearers, whatever they were. Altogether now, we're talking about verse 26, Christians. This is Paul to the Galatians. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And, you know, just as a footnote here, uh, this development in the life of the early church, it, it may have been new, for the, the Jew, Jewish believers back then, but it wasn't new in the plans of God. 
Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham. And what does he say? In you, I will bless all the nations. How does God bless all the nations through one man? Well, here's the Old Testament in 20 seconds. Um, Abraham has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, who has 12 sons that founded the 12 tribes of Israel. And from the north, we met that rather reluctant old prophet named Jonah earlier this year. And he goes to the Jews, no, to the Gentiles, to the Ninevites, to the Assyrian Empire, and he preaches a message of repentance. And then from the south, we meet this prophet Isaiah, who says, Isaiah 49.6, that the Messiah will be as a light to the nations that God's salvation may reach to the end of the earth. How is that for a neon magnified light flashing sign casting light onto Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which is our summary verse basically for this entire book, to the end of the earth. This book that we are studying, the book of Acts, this series of the growth of the Christian church is the fulfilling of a Jewish prophecy about a Jewish Messiah that gave a Jewish hope to non-Jewish people. Uh, forgive me, I'm going to go on a second footnote here. Uh, to another footnote, we just did, if you didn't realise. <laughs> Above Jesus' head on the cross, what was nailed there? It was a sign, right? And that sign was put there by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And it read the king of the Jews. It was meant as a mockery, um, but classic God doesn't even waste a mockery for a moment of evangelism, because here's what's happened. Reading John chapter 19, I think it is, that that sign was written in three languages, Latin, which is Roman, Hebrew, and Greek, to Jews and Gentiles. What's the point? The point is that we have an inscription here that it was meant for a mockery, but was actually an announcement of God's covenantal plan that he cut with, with Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. That the gospel, the king of the Jews, is news, is a message, is an announcement for Jews and Gentiles, for all the nations. The cross was no victory for the enemies of God. It was a vindication of Jesus' self-identification. This Jew from the tribe of Judah was and is and shall forevermore be the way, the truth, and the life, the blessing of God to all the nations. That includes you and me here in 2023, Newcastle. O seed of Israel's chosen race, now ransomed from the fall, hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Let every tongue and every tribe responsive to his call to him, all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. All right, footnotes over. Verse 19, persecution comes, people scatter, preaching takes place, people start believing from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And notice now that this is all happening outside of the land of Israel. We see that here, verse 19b, Phoenicia and Cyprus, Antioch. These are all Gentile cities. And verse 20, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, these are Gentile peoples. And it was on the gospel, this message of Jesus coming now to this city in Antioch, uh, a Gentile city that we read verses 20 to 21, that a great number of them, the Gentiles, who believed, turned to the Lord. So 
This is mass Gentile conversion happening in a massive Gentile city. Bit of a milestone. Now, outside of Rome, this city of Antioch, there's some ruins up there for you. It was indeed a massive city. It was actually um, the largest city in the entire empire, with the exception of Rome. It had a population of about 500,000 people, which, doing the math, you know, with the population rate back then, that, that was a huge city, massive city. Um, and because of its strategic location, it basically served as the eastern hub of the entire Roman Empire, the trade route really to Asia and Africa. Uh, so all sorts of people trafficked through uh, this particular city. It was a cosmopolitan melting pot of cultural and racial and ethnic and political and economic activity. Uh, it was a radically, radically pluralistic place. And because of that, it's really no surprise, then, that we read here in verse 26 that it was within the walls of Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Why do I say that? Because if you have people from all over the place now getting together, worshipping this Jesus as God, well, you can't exactly call it a Jewish sect anymore, can you? Ethiopians, Africans, people from across the other side of the Mediterranean, what are we going to call them? Well, just ones of Christ, ones who follow this Jesus, Christians, Christians, Christ ones. In fact, we're going to see this when we get to Acts 13 over a couple of pages. We're actually going to read about the representative leaders of this church in Antioch. We have Barnabas, who was a Cypriot Jew, so he, came, he was a bicultural Jew coming from the island of Cyprus. Uh, Simeon, who is called Niger, and, and that word means black, so he was from Africa. We have Lucius of Cyrene, which is in North Africa, so more kind of Arabic in, in ethnic background. Uh, Paul, as well, who was a rabbinic professor turned apostle of Christ from the, the ancient or from the Middle East. And Mannion, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, uh, meaning that we have an upper class citizen as well. You know, sometimes people say to me, David, it's just a white man's religion, Christianity. Sometimes people also say that I can't believe in Christianity because it's so exclusive. Because it just leaves people out, so intolerant of differences. But look at this. Christianity gets its very name in Antioch precisely because it is a multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-class community of people. That's why they were called the Christians. I do get the reason for those questions. I don't want to be flippant there. I, I, like, I get it. I understand it, particularly in the age and day in which we live. But I think the reason why that particular objection comes to Christianity... Um, it's not really because of the Christian view, I would argue. I think it's because of this cultural idea of inclusion that we have. I'm open to correction in this, so please come up and have a chat afterwards if you disagree. But from the way I see it, I see our cultural push for inclusion and inclusivity today uh, more coming out of a place of fear of not wanting to exclude anyone rather than from a desire to actually include them in something of substance. In other words, the cultural focus is less on what we have in common and more on the fact that we have all of these differences and we can't let, leave anyone out. Does that make sense? That's a complete opposite of what we're seeing here in our text. Christians are not defined by what divides us. Our differences, be they Greek, Jew, Ethiopian, African, take your pick. The idea of the Christian is that it is a person who is defined by what unites us, 
Not where we come from, but who we come to. So to that end, I want to say that if our world wants a message of inclusion, I submit to you that they have it exclusively in Jesus. Forward expansion in the growth of the church. Next we're going to see here, verses 22 through 26, a directional change to inward transformation by the grace of God. Look here, verse 22. This report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So word comes to the Jerusalem church, again about these Christians in Antioch up north, and Jerusalem wants to make sure that it's legit. And fair enough, hey, like leaders have a responsibility to make sure that they know what's going on under the banner of their particular movement. So they go and they get this bloke named Barnabas, and Barnabas sets off up north to survey the situation. Now, we've met Barney a couple of times before um, in Acts. He wasn't an apostle. Barnabas wasn't even actually his name. It was a nickname that the, the disciples gave to him back in Acts chapter 4 uh, because it means son of encouragement. And back there in Acts chapter 4, you, you remember why they called him that because he was this guy from Cyprus, obviously very wealthy, sold all these lands and possessions and came and laid them at the feet of the um, apostles and, and disciples. And so they were encouraged by his giving, his finances. Later in Acts chapter 9, we also see that he was living up to his nickname's sake in Acts chapter 9 because it was Barnabas who went and got alongside Paul the Apostle. When Paul came to town after his conversion experience and he wouldn't really get a hearing before the, the Apostles, so Barnabas puts his arm around him and pulls him to the side and says, I'll give you a hearing, let's go, let's have a chat. And so in Acts chapter 9, Barnabas encourages the church with his friendship. So Acts 4, he encourages them with his finances. Acts 9, he encourages them with his friendship. And here in Acts chapter 11, we're going to see how Barnabas encourages them with the church, with his fellowship. Now this um, city in Antioch that Barnabas is going to head to, um, well, let me put it this way. Uh, when Alexander the Great, that... Uh, very influential, very successful conqueror of the world, massive empire um, of Greece. When he died, he didn't have any children. So what they ended up doing was they divided his empire amongst four of his generals. And one of the, the generals there was named Antiochus. And he took over the land north of Israel called Syria. Uh, it was a Greek possession. And the people there in that region became known as the Seleucids. And the dynasty of the Seleucids took on this name of Antiochus. So that, that Seleucid empire lasted about 250 years or so. Um, and it was during the reign of the, the Antiochus kind of dynasty line that one of them, Antiochus IV, or otherwise known as Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, rose to power. And he's actually the guy that Daniel prophesied about in his book that was just basically a maniac, like nuts. Um, genocidal kind of maniac. He actually cut up a pig and splayed and, and, and threw all of its offal and entrails all over the, um, the temple. You want to, the second temple. You want to talk about unclean for a Jew? Imagine what that would have done to their mindset. Um, so he's that guy uh, stringing up pig guts. But, and, and, and in fact, that's why the Maccabean revolt happened. Uh, and then we have now the Feast of Hanukkah celebrating that. Anyway, that's not important for today. But really interesting history. Antiochus is the guy that named this city um, Antioch after his name's sake. Now, I'll tell you that picture because it's really important to keep in mind what would have been going on to the 
poor heads of the Jerusalem church as they're hearing about the gospel, this church movement up north in Antioch. The modern-day equivalent would be something like Hitler found in a city, calling it Hitlerville, and then Jews back home hearing about it, saying, hey, who wants to go up to Hitlerville to hear about this church that's kicking off? Any volunteers? So poor old Barnabas gets picked, this son of encouragement, to make the journey north. Um, Now again, Antioch was a very cosmopolitan place. It was a happening, hip, urban place. And because of the amount of traffic coming through there, it was also a very base place, a very immoral place. Outside of the city was a temple, the Temple of Daphne, and that was dedicated to Apollo. Uh, The story goes in uh, Greek mythology that it was the god Apollo who was quite interested in this nymph named Daphne, so he chased her down and she didn't really appreciate his advances, so she ran off through the woods and in an attempt to help out his daughter, Daphne's dad turned her into a laurel tree. Uh, So now they have outside of the city walls, they had at that time, a temple dedicated to Daphne and amongst those laurel trees planted all around that temple, were sordid activity, to say the least. So this is first century Antioch. It's a transitory place with all sorts of people from all sorts of life chasing all sorts of desires. But remember, the good news of Jesus turns up and boom, great number of people come to the Lord. You give the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to people hungry with desire and they will take it. Because there is no greater pleasure, there is nothing more beautiful, there is nothing more satisfying, there is nothing more lasting, nothing more enduring than tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. So the Jerusalem church hears about this and they're like, whoa, we don't have anyone up north, we need to send somebody up there to make sure this is legit. Who's going to go? Barnabas, the encourager, stands up, he goes, he comes to Antioch and what does he see? When he came... He saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this really, really encouraging. I mean, think about big-hearted, I think of him with a big smile on his face, big-hearted, smiling Barnabas. He must have had some degree of angst on that journey. It was about a a one-month journey by foot uh, going from Jerusalem to Antioch. He probably ran through all of the possible scenarios about what was happening up there at this place. He He had enough time to imagine the worst. He finally arrives. His eyes are open. No crazy laurel tree activities happening. He just walks in and he's like, whoa, this is it. This is legit. This is the real deal. This is the grace of God. So what does he do? He just does what he does best. He just encourages them. He just encourages them. Your, your translation might have the word exhort. He, he encouraged, he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, yep, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> now I have a question at this point. We read that when Barnabas came to Antioch, verse 23 that he saw the grace of God and he was glad. So my question is, what would that have looked like? What does the grace of God look like? To answer this, I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Titus chapter 2. I'll have it up on the screen if you'd like as well. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. We read here, 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So stop right there. What does grace look like? Saved people. All people, not just Jews. (laughs) Jews and Gentiles, right? All people. Melting pot. Christians. This is what grace looks like. And it's what Barnabas evidently saw in Antioch. But look what else Paul says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So what trains us? Sermons? Quiet times? Christian friends? Christian service? Preaching? Flipping sausages out the back in readiness for a Father's Day lunch, dinner, a church. These all may be vehicles through which we are learnt about grace, but what actually trains us? It's the grace of God. Grace, this free and undeserved favour that we receive by God through Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and new and eternal life in Him. Grace is what trains us to live, ungod- to live godly lives and self-controlled lives in this present age. Okay, so how does grace train us? Well, I've heard it described like this, and full disclosure, this, this illustration is not unique to me, but I'm going to do some Dave Dean embellishing here. Imagine, for argument's sake, that you wake up tomorrow. This could be a, a woman or a man, just whatever. Okay. Imagine that you wake up tomorrow uh, morning, assuming that you're a parent um, and, and you're, you're late for work because the kids were just staying up late, um, doing whatever they do in their room, and you had to get up for like a nightmare in the middle of the night too. You've got a dull headache. You have a lot of important meetings on. You needed to be in early. You wake up late. So you get out of bed with that dull headache, a little bit frustrated. Uh, You go to get the kids up because they're still asleep, dead asleep, because they were staying awake when they shouldn't have been. Uh, You finally get them up. You go downstairs. You want to take initiative to help these poor uh, sleeping little children of yours out. So you start making them breakfast, crushed wheat bix in the bowl. Then you open up the fridge. No milk. (laughs) Okay, so you just pour that wheat bix back into the plastic bag, scrunch it up, put it in the box, put it on the shelf, put toast down, go away. You go away and you go to get dressed for the morning. And you realise, oh yeah, I didn't do the washing from yesterday. Okay, so we pull this thing out of the dirty clothes basket, you give it a sniff test, and you go, I'm going to do the spot check, I'm going to go to give it the spot clean, it's just got that white kind of crust around here. Uh, So you take it down to the laundry, scrub, 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 put it in the dryer, bing, tick back, sit back, watch it, and you're like, don't have time. So you open it back up, put it back on, now you're wearing damp clothes and you've got hungry kids, and you walk into the lounge room, into the, the kitchen, the toast has popped, and they look at you and they say, yeah, Dad, Mum, we didn't want toast. <laughs> you, just, you just walk away. So you go get the keys, you tell them to get in the car, you've got hungry kids, you're wearing damp clothes, and they smell like yesterday's sweat. So you get them in the car. They're screaming because they're hungry and they're tired. You're screaming because you're hungry, you're tired, and now you're starting to sweat in your own sweat. You drop the kids off at school, you take a breath, you look at the clock, you're still late. So you look over your shoulder, you pull out, and you just punch it. Like, I mean punch it. Now you're speeding down the road, you're weaving in and out of traffic, you're that dude that everyone doesn't like on the road, when all of a sudden, there's sirens 
in the rearview mirror and you hear, you see the lights as well. And you're like, oh, great. And then you have that little moment of maniac and you go, I can take him. <laughs> so, you go full pedal to the metal at this point, you unleash, and before you know it, there's two cops, there's three cops, there's four cops, there is a river of cops tailing you down the pack highway in Newcastle. So you take it up again, you go even faster, and you've got that crazy smile on your face. And there we hear, whoop, 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 there's a chopper. And you, you slide back, you, and you're looking up, and you're like, oh, that's it. And, and there's news over there now, too. So you have choppers, you have cops, and you're flogging it down the pack highway, and you come to the Glebina Road intersection up here, you know, and, and there's just, oh, there is cops everywhere, barricades, spike strips. Oh, all right, so you slam on your brakes, and then you come to this halt. Some poor guy jumps out of the way. You nearly hit and kill a cop. And then you remembered, or you forgot, that your, your son's little water pistol's on the front, front of the you know, chair there. So they just come, guns drawn. They smash open the window. They drag you out. They throw you on the ground. They cuff you. Then the cop that you nearly hit, he comes over, kneels down at you, picks you up, on your butt, cuffs behind your back, you're just sitting there a little bit bruised. And he's like, what in the world were you doing? Like, what were you thinking? And you just say, officer, let me tell you about my morning. The kids wouldn't get up and then you share your morning and he just looks at you and goes, hey, I get it. I have kids too. Tell you what I'm going to do for you today. I'm going to let you off with a warning. You know, help him. You know what? Actually, here, here's some cash for that broken window. I'm really sorry about that, man. You're like, oh, gee, thanks. Good guys. Just need a break. Thanks, mate. All right. Now, see you later. Drive safe. So you get back in your car. Do you peel out at 180 now? No. What has trained you to drive differently? Grace. In fact, you, you indicator on, you look over the, you look over twice, merge out, and let's just keep it at 48 on the way to work. You look at the clock, you're still late, but hey, that's okay, that's all right. Like there's bigger realities in life right now, like killing cops. So you take your time and you drive to work. The law will never change the human heart. No speed limit will change the way you drive. This is the grace of God. It is the transformation of the human heart, and it happens from the inside out. All right. That's what Barnabas saw when he got to Antioch. He walks in, and he was expecting to see Daphne-like ungodliness. He expected to see garbage, but he saw the good stuff. So just as Peter reported to the Jerusalem church that God's grace has now gone to a single Gentile named Cornelius. So the, Gentile, so the Jewish church sends out Barnabas to the Gentiles, and he's now reporting, not a single Jew, but a massive conversion commune community of, of Gentiles within a Gentile city. Do you see the contrast here? Boom, explosion. You're kind of getting ready now, braced a little bit for some more persecution. It's going to come a couple of weeks. But this is so encouraging. I feel so encouraged. These people have been dead for 2,000 years and they're still encouraging me with their story. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is still encouraging me with his ministry. I want to praise God for this because the gospel is going to all the nations. So let me ask you as a church, 
If Barnabas was to come here to Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, would he report, I saw the grace of God at this place? I was thinking about that this week. I think the answer would be yes. I mean, I don't know about you, but I do see the grace of God here. We're not perfect, but that's not what grace looks like, right? Grace looks like changed lives from people from all over the place, seeking to honour Jesus, desiring to grow. And I see that in you guys, in the way that you care for one another, the way that you get into the Word, the way that you pray for one another, the way that you cook meals for one another, the way that you serve at church. So in light of that, I think the take-home message for Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, today, is the same that Barnabas left with Antioch. He exhorted them, he encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, I'm conscious of time here, so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to scrap point three. Let's end on point two. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll talk after. I think if the, if I just want I just want you to chew on this meat, no pun intended, or maybe because we're going to go eat meat in a moment. I just want you to chew on this a little bit more. It's really important. If you get the if you get the point here, then the implications should roll for the, for point three. Forward expansion in the growth of the church, inward transformation by the grace of God. If the message here for you and I at Calvary Chapel Newcastle is to remain faithful to the Lord, then how do we do that? I think, primarily, we do that through encouragement. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Barnabas wasn't an apostle. He wasn't even an evangelist. He didn't go to preach at Antioch. He was just a big-hearted, big-smiling encourager. And yet it was precisely by or through his encouragement of these people, his exhorting of them to remain faithful and steadfast in the Lord, that we read verse 24b, a great many people were added to the Lord. In fact, he was clearly not prepared for this. So successful was his ministry of encouragement, Barnabas just being Barnabas, that he realizes he needs reinforcements. This is getting a little bit beyond his smiling face. So verse 25, he goes and calls in the theological big guns, Saul of Tarsus. And verse 26, for a whole year they meet with um, the church there together as a team in Antioch, teaching a great many people. So if this story of the church in Antioch teaches us anything... I think it is that encouragement, exhortation to just remain in the grace of God, because that's what trains us to not go 180. Uh, that encouragement is essential if we are to grow deep spiritual roots as a Christian community. Okay, but you still haven't told me what encouragement is, David. <laughs> Glad you asked. Let me explain it this way. Um, my eldest son... Uh, Asher, he, he's weird, right? He's a weird kid. Um, he's a beautiful baby, like I love him to bits, but he's got some quirks. I wonder where he gets that from. Um, <laughs> he does this thing where he doesn't like mixing his, his mum, by the way, if you weren't sure, uh, where he doesn't like mixing his food. And that's a little bit tough for my, my dear wife because she loves to cook pretty tasty curry, which is meant to be mixed. Um, he wants his rice in its little pile, he wants his shredded vegetables in its little pile, he wants the meat in its little pile, and he wants the yogurt in its little pile. And you do not tell him to mix them, otherwise he will cry. Everything has its little place. But he doesn't do that with the salt. He doesn't. 
He doesn't like pile that up onto the side of his plate, does he? Why? Because salt is seasoning. It's made to be mixed in. That's what makes everything tasty. It's the same with encouragement. We don't have a ministry of encouragement here at Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. Like, you know, worship or mums and bubs. That's because encouragement should be mixed into everything that we do as a church. But with that said, David, what is encouragement? Okay, late in the day, hold on to the front pew if you need to. This is really important. Verse 23, the Greek word for exhort or encourage is parakleo. Parakleo. Now that word has two, is made up of two smaller words. Kaleo is a strong word, which means to call out or to point people towards some goal or truth. Uh, para is a weaker word, and it means to come alongside and support, like paralegal, um, parachurch, parachute, right? These are, these are the, the two smaller words that make up encouragement. It's something gentle, and it's something firm. That's what encouragement is, something gentle and something firm. It's what Paul says to the church in Ephesus about speaking truth in love. It's what the author of Hebrews says when he writes uh, 3.13. Exhort, encourage, parakaleo, one another, as long as it is day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is what encouragement looks like. It's a firm word that shakes us up from making excuses, from you know, justifying our shortcomings, but it's also a gentle, tender, patient word because otherwise we wouldn't hear the truth when it's spoken to us. We'd just dig in to our deluded self-denial. But getting this balance right, this paracletic balance right of speaking truth and love, of being gentle and firm, it's not easy, is it? We all fall one side of the beam. Some of us are more gentle and tender without being firm and direct. Others of us are more firm and direct without being gentle and tender. None of us do this well, and yet getting this balance right, we read here, helps us to grow. That's what happened in Antioch. So is God asking the impossible here? Encourage one another, but oh, by the way, you can't do this. <laughs> I don't think so, because Barnabas is doing it. What makes him so special? Verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. How do we be sons and daughters of encouragement like Barnabas? Luke says Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's not a throwaway line by Luke. Don't miss this. Barnabas was a good encourager, a paracletic minister, because he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Some time ago I was listening to the late Timothy Keller um, and he was unpacking the idea of the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of a believer and it was such a eureka moment for me that I have to share it with you here. He went to John chapter, uh, the Gospel of John 13 through 16 um, and this, this whole section is the night before Jesus' death and Jesus is there with his disciples in that upper room getting them ready for all that is to take place in the coming days and weeks and months and at one point, Jesus says, I'm about to leave, and where I'm going, you can't come with me. And, and you know, over-eager Peter is just like, no, we can, where are you going, mate? We'll go with you. What, are you going to die? I'll, I'll die with you. 
And then we continue to read, and Doubting Thomas speaks up, and he's like, well, yeah, of course we can't go with you. You haven't told us where you're going. I care to share. And then it's really quite sad. You get to uh, chapter 14, verse 9, and Jesus looks at his disciples. I think it's Philip specifically, but he's kind of speaking to all of them. And he goes, have you been with me so long, and you still don't know who I am? But does Jesus leave them like that? Dejected? Discouraged? No, he encourages them. Now, how does Jesus encourage his disciples? He says, John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Some translations might have the word helper there. Now, this word for advocate or helper is the Greek word paraclete. It's the noun form of the verb parakleo, right? In Acts 11.23. So just please follow me here. (laughs) If Jesus says that the Father is going to give another advocate, then that implies that there's already an advocate, right? Now who's that? I know you know, but let's see it in the Bible, all right? The only other place in the New Testament where the word in the noun form for paraclete is used is 1 John 2.1. And there we read these words, My little children... If anyone does not sin, my little children, if I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete, with the Father. Who's that? Jesus Christ, the righteous. So back to the upper room. When Jesus encourages his disciples by telling them that another advocate is coming, he's encouraging them in two ways. Number one, by telling them that he already is their advocate. And number two, by telling them that he's sending them a second advocate. Jesus is our advocate. This is enormously encouraging. Like, don't let that just wash over you. Thanks, heard it all before, David. When the Father looks at a person full of faith in Jesus, a person like you, perhaps, like me, he sees a man or a woman for whom the wages of sin are paid in full and God does not double dip. There is no more payment for sin. There is no more condemnation, Romans 8.1. It's done. This is encouraging, friends. This should be an encouragement to us. This is what Jesus himself is saying. He is our advocate. He stands in our place before the Father, before the judgment seat. And if that weren't enough, he then looks at his disciples and says, I'm sending you a second advocate, the Holy Spirit. And he tells them in that upper room that the entire purpose of the Holy Spirit is to remind them of everything that he has taught them. So the second advocate advocates for the first advocate. So putting all of this together, Jesus is our first advocate. He speaks to the Father for us. The Holy Spirit is our second advocate speaking to us for us. About Jesus, about his finished work on the cross, and about what that does for you and me today as Christians. We are washed We are clean. We are forgiven. Don't call unclean what I have made clean, Peter. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how do we become good encouragers here at Calvary Chapel, Newcastle? First, by being encouraged ourselves. We walk the paracletic beam by holding the hand of our helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, 
who constantly reminds us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is, by the way, the author and perfecter of our faith. Barnabas was full of faith. But this is not a Barnabas thing, it's a Jesus thing, because he was full of something that Jesus Christ was the author and perfecter of, and we now have the Holy Spirit that helps us to see that reality in our lives, so that when we're walking and when we're talking and we get told names and we get called this, that, or other thing, and and your parents look you in the eye and tell you you're a mistake, I don't know. You can say, I have an advocate (laughs) to the highest degree in all of the cosmos, and he says, I was fearfully and wonderfully made. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. And by the way, as we do this, it's coming from a place of already being included. We're not trying to achieve an inclusion over here. That's not why we're preaching the gospel to ourselves. It's because we're included already. And that's, by the way, point three, if you wanted a sentence summary. (laughs) You can be generous because you're already accepted with the wellspring of grace in a bank that just keeps on giving and giving and giving. You know, we're grace philanthropists. You can just give as much as you've received and you've received an infinite amount from from the Father. So in the end, this is all just about preaching the gospel to ourselves. It's about trying to see Jesus in everything. That's what trains us. That's what encourages us to encourage others. So let me just finish with, uh, I guess, with this. What's discouraging you today? Is it frustration and anger towards difficult people? It's been my, that's been my year. <laughs> Jesus is the embodiment of patience and understanding. And peace, peace, his peace, not as the world knows it, but peace, not like the world, he leaves with you. Is it singleness? Jesus is the one spouse who will never leave you, will never disappoint you. And oh, by the way, that's beyond death where you will not part. Is it loneliness? Jesus is the one friend who is closer than any brother, any mother, any father. And he's always present in our moments of solitude. Is it a sense of helplessness? Like, Something or someone that you love is just out of control and you can't help them and you really want to. And it's breaking your heart. Remember that that's what the cross looked like. And yet it was in that darkness in the middle of the day that we read elsewhere that it was in that very moment that God was doing a work of internal significance in reconciling the world to himself. Is it failure? Jesus is the Redeemer who specializes in making broken things into beautiful things. So lift up your hearts, saints. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this encouraging milestone of a message. Lord, we thank you for Stephen's ministry which endures into the scattered believers of this time and now to really the scattered believers all over the world who continue to preach the word in hostile places. 
We just think about those that we, we serve here um, by you know, financial and prayerful support. And we just think of them now and we commit them to you, Lord. I just pray that in this very moment now, though they're not with us, that they would feel encouraged. Father, we thank you for Barnabas' ministry, which endures as a model of encouragement for us today in seeing how the Holy Spirit works in our lives to point us to Jesus. Lord, may our ministry endure likewise, not pointing uh, to our name, but like these men, pointing to you. All the kingdoms built, all those trophies that we win, all those participation certificates that we get, Lord, they're just going to crumble into dust. All that matters is the one whose name that will last forever. And may we be a salty people, encouraged with the hope that is Jesus, clean, forgiven, made new, made to last, made to live and to live to the full. May that be who we are here as Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, and may this little city that you've put us in know it. Let them say whatever they want to say about us, but Lord, may they never say that we are not people who live with the hope that is within us. Lord, you promise that we have a life full in you. I pray that we would own it today in a new way, that we would be encouraged by it, and may we encourage others. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.